I'm Elena Hudgens-Lyle. And I'm Harvinder Vadva. We're the hosts of Inappropriate Questions, and we're back with Season 3. With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Rassico, and you're listening to Seat at the Table. So this season, Martine and I want to focus on the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, but also on the urgency of this moment and really how to move forward. So in this episode, we speak to the London-based poet and podcaster who's been described as really the voice of a generation. As black people engaging with the governments and the systems of powerful Western countries, we have to reconcile history every single day. Our lives have to be the happy ending. That's the pressure that we have. That's George Mpanga, better known as George the Poet, a spoken word artist and social commentator. His award-winning BBC podcast, Have You Heard George's Podcast, fearlessly digs into some of the biggest cultural and political issues of our time. And every episode is like a short story. Yeah. And can I say that his voice is very sexy and so we, we you know, we it don't want to let go? It is, absolutely. And it's soothing? It's soothing and you're, ha- you know, and you're, you're hanging on every word. Every word. Picture yourself right now while you do your thing. Start zooming in to your face, through your skin, through your flesh and through your bone, to the centre of your dome. Now picture these words entering your dome. Picture the picture they're painting on your mind, one word behind the other like a conga line. That's what happens when you listen to this podcast or any interview, poem or song of mine. I discovered him when he opened the BBC coverage of Meghan and Harry's wedding, the the one we weren't invited to. No. And so there's one part of the poem that he recited that I particularly love. I know you think I'm dead inside, (laughs) but... (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I'm not fully dead inside. And so at, at oh. one point, at one point, he says, "There's an there's unparalleled, unparalleled bravery in union. union." And telling the one you love, the only way that we can truly win is if I think of you in everything I do, and honor every decision you faithfully include me in. I love that. It's the truest of vows for me. Yeah, well, as a person married for 21 years, I can tell you, uh, I do not honor every decision my husband faithfully makes, okay? Okay, Beautiful, but... So everything Donald says behind your back is absolutely true. Absolutely. (laughs) But it's, it's fun also to speak with George the Poet because he, you know, has spoken often about... Uh, the significance of art in the civil rights movement. And he actually uses his poetry to speak to the inequality and and Mm. injustice. And during confinement and in the past three months since the the death of George Floyd, I have found solace in music. One of the songs that I keep on coming back to is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. It brings me comfort, but at the same time, you listen to it today, it could have been written last week. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lyrics that are ripped from the headlines. You know, when he says, mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's too many of you dying. 
And then later on in the songs, he says, picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me with brutality. I mean, is that not what we're reading right now in the newspapers? It is exactly the same thing. So, you know, a song that is 50 years old, still very accurate today, not only because it, its uh, beats are timeless and because Marvin Gaye himself as an artist is timeless, but because the topic is still very much newsworthy, unfortunately. You know, I can't say that I had the reflex to go listen to music. Mm -hmm. I have kids that I have music on all the time, mind you. So whenever I can have some silence, <laughs> I prefer. I, I turn more to reading in, mm -hmm. in those moments. But I, I get what you're saying. And it's true that music has been such an important part of the civil rights movement. You know, they were there to just strengthen their psychological aspect of things when it came to harassment and brutality. Mm -hmm. It also motivated them through the marches. I personally um, remember two very uh, distinct moments in the last couple of years where s certain songs came on, protest songs, and timing and what they were meant everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of an Arcade Fire song featuring Mavis Staples, who's mm -hmm. also part of the Staples Singers, who've had a, you know, a Freedom Highway song. So, Who's been fighting it for a long time. That song came out a day before Donald Trump's inauguration. Mm -hmm. The fact that it was saying, we're giving you the power, but you cannot take it for granted and understand what it means. We gave you the power mm -hmm. and we can take it away. Mm -hmm. And to me, that song was powerful at that time for that. But it also came down to me asking myself, who do I give power to? Because right. sometimes we do give power to people that we shouldn't. And, but, so what about you, Martine? Because I know that you have more than one song for sure. You love music so much. I mean, I have many, uh, the classics, of course. And so, you know, I've, I've, I've gone back to Billie Holiday with Strange Fruit and Sam Cooke's A Change Going to Come. And, you know, I love Springsteen. So a lot of Springsteen, you know, I love Stevie Wonder. But the one also that I, I, I've been listening to a lot is Kendrick Lamar's All Right, which was not a protest song per se, but it's, it became an anthem. I'm at the preacher's door. My knee's getting weak and my gun might blow up. Amazing. And he wrote it when he came back from, from South Africa. So there was, you know, this inspiration from the motherland. And, you know, Kendrick is King Kendrick. So he... it's about empowerment. We're going to be all right. It's, it's no. tough. It's not easy, but we're going to be all right. I love his message of hope mm. right in this in this song. Yeah. And he is, a, you know, a voice of that generation that he is part of. And yeah. so I saw him perform that song live. Mm -hmm. Loved it. Talking about performance, I don't know about you, but I remember the moment This Is America by Childish Gambino came out. I was blown away by the song, by the images. I must have watched it five times. Mm -hmm. To understand it. The first day it. I just, watched yeah, just it. To, five, yeah. Just to understand it. Just to understand. There are so many messages and there are now videos about the messages <laughs> that are hidden. Yeah. That's to tell you how many messages are about gun violence, about brutality, about the difficulties of being Black in this America and also about the image and the fact that they're using entertainment to make you forget and not watch what's really going on. Mm -hmm. At times I had trouble looking at the video. Oh, yeah, the video is like a sucker punch. Ah. 
Chavez Gambino at the end starts running, and that image of a black man running away just kills me. So yeah, protest songs have been uh, important. This just speaks to the significance of art in the civil rights movement and in revolutions and in this current Black Lives Matter movement. And so it's great that we get to speak to George the Poet today. He's going to take it to another level for us. George, welcome to Seat at the Table. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm not going to lie. I am intimidated to speak to a fellow podcast host uh, because your rep precedes you. I mean, for those who don't know, George is a storyteller, an observer, a rapper, a poet. His critically acclaimed series, Have You Heard George's Podcast from the BBC, won many awards, including a Peabody Award. So, George, please tell me that you've been flexing your awards to your friends and family because Martina and I would have milked it. <laughs> no, no, those those awards, I don't even talk about them. Um, people, people talk about them too much to me, so I just try and, you know, block it all out. One thing that... I find when I listen to your podcast is not only do I find that you have an old soul, um, but also that you have a lot of empathy. You are able to put yourself in the other person's shoe and and really look at things in a multidimensional way. It's not given to everybody. Where does it come from? Hmm. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you for appreciating my perspective I guess I've had um, a life of extremes and extremes on different ends of the spectrum so I grew up in the blackest part of a very white country then from a working class black community I entered a middle class English grammar school that had like a very private school culture Um, so that was contrasting with the community that I was from. Mm. Then from that community, in that space, I picked up the skill of rapping. But as I developed as a rapper, my friends developed as criminals and I developed as a student. So out of that environment, I ended up in Cambridge University. While I was there, I was on, I was kind of alone. So I, I, I withdrew into myself and I became a poet. But then I used that withdrawal to present myself to the world so it's like extreme 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 um but traveling those extremes you start to get quite a broad perspective of human nature you know if i grew up with poor black people i went to school with rich white kids you get a broad reference for what's going on in the world in the same week hmm. not so much in 2020 because of uh covid but In, in the past five years of my life, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to spend time around the royal family and time in prison doing a workshop in the same week. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So, yeah. One of the many reasons we were, we were excited to speak with you, George, is because Britain and Canada have such similar issues. And one of them is that both countries like to sometimes argue that racism is something we've imported from America and and that you know this it's an American issue. Mm. Why does this belief still persist today? If you look in your own life as a human being, you can see multiple layers of storytelling that you've been through. 
when you were a child, you thought of yourself one way, um, and that self-perception has evolved along your journey. And I think countries go through the same thing. I think um, as our access to information grows, so does our opportunity to update the narratives that we have about ourselves. But that is a gradual process. But how much do you think education is a factor? Because when I look at, you know, the history books that we have in schools right now for kids and the ones Martina and I had, you know, yeah. it's very, very inadequate. And they don't tell the full stories and experiences of black, brown and indigenous people. Um, so, yeah. you know, what are the inadequacies also in Britain? Yeah, it's the same thing. School is the breeding ground for the ideology that we perpetuate in many ways. What we find in Britain is a complete absence of Britain's record on slavery, of course, on the dark side of colonialism. And these are very heavy realities in the lives of black, brown, um, and in, in, the, in the North America's indigenous people. But for, for such a big part of your identity to go unrecognized by mainstream education speaks to your wider engagement with this society. How do you navigate through this multi-layered identity, meaning that, which is an experience that, you know, black people don't have the monopoly of. I mean, every child of immigrant has to deal with some kind of duality of identity. And you speak of yours coming from that background and going to school with another type of, in another type of environment. And then fighting with the fact that you love Britain, you live there, but still there's this there's this brutality in the history of, of Britain against our people. How do you deal with that? It's it's because I find that even, you know, at my age sometimes I have difficulty juggling these all these identities. And she's old, let me just add this, George. <laughs> <laughs> um I feel like we are all given something to reconcile in our lives, all of us. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I put my mind to accepting the things I couldn't change about myself. Really throughout my journey as a poet, that's what I've, that's what I've been doing. That's what I've been trying to do. And it hasn't been easy. There have been times where I just withdrew from the public because everything that I want to say is not the conclusion that I want to arrive at. I know I'm not there yet. So I have to fall back and I have to listen. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on with my questions around dual identity. I realized that I was never owed a straightforward answer. And if I keep my eyes open and if I'm looking for opportunity, I might see the value in my situation, as confusing as it might be. Wow. You know, obviously... Black people are, we're not a monolith group. We don't have the same experience, not historically, not politically, not socially, but still we do have a lot of things in common. So how do you connect these experiences between black people and the diaspora? Well, that's a great question, Martin. I was listening to one of the episodes of my podcast earlier. Episode 17 is called The Bag. In the 1950s and 60s, about 250,000 people arrived in Britain from the West Indies. And around the same time, African-Americans were channeling their passion and intelligence into a new form, and the response was more than lukewarm. Jazz had the factors and the elements that initially... And in that, I track the birth of 
some black music forms ranging from jazz to R&B in the US to ska in Jamaica. On that journey, I realized that through um, all the years of separation between African people and all the, all the movement and the exploitation and the things that have pushed us across the world, we have somehow come up with very similar music. Somehow. We value the same things musically and we do similar things in different parts of the world with our music. We tell our stories through our music. We, we create wealth through our music. We change the perception of our communities across the world through our music. So I think in that, in, 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 in our expression, in our creative expression, you can start to see clues about what it means to be Pan-African. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you've been talking a lot of, uh, in the media about, and you've been asked to go comment a lot in the media about race relations, about what's going on right now. Uh, we're asking you to do the same here, and Martina and I are doing a whole series on that, and we're not experts. And and I have to tell you, we've been thinking, Martina, that's a, it's a bit tiring at times, and um, I was wondering how you're feeling about it. Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, I remember being really young when my mom first spoke to me about slavery and about the legacy of slavery. I must have been about five years old. And in the back of my mind, from that day, I've imagined a scoreboard with, like, all the all the races or all the people of the world and their perception and their narrative and what what's known about them and i'm like we just need we need to even the score we need we we need more understood about us we need more respect for who we were we need more confidence in our strengths as as a people um and because i've had that idea since i was about five years old over my lifetime i've realized that that responsibility expresses itself in some special people every generation but it would be much more effective spread across the whole group every generation so that it wouldn't all be on one inspirational figure Mm. or one outspoken rebel to to correct the historical record it should it should be on all of us but the downside of that responsibility is that we have to keep having these conversations Mm. yeah and and I mean the burden exists, George, because don't you find that we we have to repeat the same things because they're not universally understood yet? Don't you find that that responsibility? Yeah. Because also at one point you're like, well, if not us, then who? Because we have that platform. And you know what, Martine, I think that speaks to the heart of the problem. Mm. We are working with a very difficult institutional dynamic. Yeah. Um as black people engaging with the governments and the systems of powerful Western countries, we have to reconcile history every single day. Our lives have to be the happy ending. That's the pressure that we have. Mm. We have to make everything that has happened to us make sense. Yeah. And... That's that's a hell of a job for 
for people that have been separated from the the knowledge of who they were. He smashed pretty much every billboard and streaming record that matters. It has already been streamed more than a billion times. Billion. People still to this day point to, this is the moment everything changed. But whether you agree with those claims or not, this podcast isn't really about him. Either you're not an astute businessman or you're inherently racist when it comes to black music in this country. This is not a Drake podcast. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you consider yourself an activist? (laughs) Words are funny because we don't always mean the same thing by the same word. You're right. So I don't know what everyone means by activist. Okay, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Someone who chooses to resist the things that don't sit, sit right with, I don't know. Someone that chooses to resist would be in the definition. Point out injustices to me. That's what I would say. Martine? Speaking out. Yeah. Um, I, I think what we've seen to you know, since the death of George Floyd is is um a series of activism that activism has more than one form. So I agree with you, George, that every person may have their own definition. And in that respect, what has surprised you the most and what we've seen in the past three months across the world as for, as far as reactions to the death of George Floyd? Hmm. That silence is loaded. <sighs> I'm used to being ignored. I think as black people we are, we're used to being ignored. And I've been surprised that in much of English society at least and from what I see Western society there's an acknowledgement that black people have been ignored I'm surprised to see that I, I, I don't think that's the that's the solution that we needed I wasn't holding my breath waiting for that moment to come and I don't have much faith in it personally you don't have faith in what precisely I don't have faith that what needs to happen in order for black people to experience an economic turnaround? I do not believe that will spring from the acknowledgement of injustice mm. by white people. I, I, I welcome the acknowledgement. I just don't place too much expectation on it. George, you sound like my husband right now. <laughs> and I'm a lot more optimistic than he is. So, uh, But you're talking about the econo- economical aspect of things. You recently wrote an op-ed in Time magazine titled Black Excellence is not just a hashtag. It's an economic lifeline. So let's explain what you mean by that, because you just tapped on it a bit. Okay, well... Earlier, I talked about how black people all over the world came up with different forms of music that kind of sound the same. We know that because those forms of music traveled to us across the globe. How did they travel to us? Through market economics, free market economics. You know, um, being able to sell music enabled us to see real global influence and change our position, change the understanding of our narrative. 
So I would say that, you know, we can probably plan around that. If you liken that to oil-rich countries, this culture is our oil. Hmm. It's a renewable energy. It's a clean energy, though. What are some of the songs, the protest art that has shaped you? Uh, I'm I'm curious because you're an artist, so that means your eye is more critical, your ear is more critical. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. Um, well, the probably number one protest song for me is Bob Marley, Zimbabwe. Every man got the right to decide. I've been listening to that song since I was a kid and everything that he explains about the, the, the cost of being a true activist versus a mercenary. Again, the Pan-African vibe of it, the, 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 the international outlook, the context of it. This, he wrote that song at a time when my parents were growing up in the context of the disappointment of African independence, the failed promises. So the older I get, the more I understand how loaded that song was. And I just think it's a beautifully written and performed song. Tupac Changes is also up there. Nas, like Nas's whole catalogue. Um, mm -hmm. One Mike. Um, a lot of Lauren Hill. See, with someone like Lauren now, I wouldn't even pinpoint one song and say that um, she protested on my behalf, but her whole expression, <laughs> her whole presence, her whole aesthetic from... When I was a kid, that's just something yes. that I could hold on to. You're right. You know what I mean? She's right up there. But you talk a lot about rap, but you've also criticized it. What's, what's your relationship with rap music? Rap rap music is, is family. I don't know. It's like either it's my big brother or my, my cool uncle. But I definitely grew up looking up to rap. But what I found was that rap is motivated by things I don't want it to be motivated by. You know, a, a lot of rap is motivated by the streets. Yeah, Rap serves the streets. Rap follows the streets. You can even see it in the career of Tupac. That was, that's a, that was a leader. That was the son of a, a panther. That was someone who grew up speaking revolutionary talk, who was definitely like that into his early manhood. But the presence of the streets just corrupts the conversation. Street values are different. And I wish, I wish rap expected to step into a role of leadership for the streets. But rap doesn't expect that of itself yet. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes, sometimes it does outside of the music. Do you not find that some of the rap artists with, you know, initiatives that they have on the side, it's the same thing as athletes. Like they step out outside of their art, outside of their sport. So it's there's the entertainment part, but when I look at someone like Killer Mike, for example, who's so involved in politics, his influence goes beyond the music. I think you're right. I think the glass is half full. That's mm -hmm. how I am. It's just family. You know, you, you know your family. So if I yeah. sit you down, I give you a couple shots of tequila <laughs> and I ask you to just spill your guts about like what's frustrating you mo most of your family, you're going to have a lot to say. Of course. And that's how I am with rap. But the love is, is so deep. And you're right. I love it. I, mm. I, I'm writing a lot about rap for this new chapter of my podcast. Nice. 
you know, I love it too. I criticize it all the time as well. I, you know, whenever I see, I see rappers and, and their dumb videos, you know, throwing out, you know, dollar bills. I'm like, save those dollars, put them somewhere yeah. else. And so yeah, I, I, I'm on the same page. And I guess it's because we love it so much that we can criticize it. There you go. It's, it is a beautiful thing. You know what it is? We wouldn't have the space to look at ourselves and critique ourselves if we did not have this problematic music because it's honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and what's your relationship with spoken words then? Spoken word. <laughs> so in, in my podcast, I characterize or I personify ideas mm -hmm. to explain my dynamic with them. I did it with countries. Um, <laughs> and in my mind, I do it with um, spoken word and rap. Rap is like, I, I okay, I characterized rap as a big brother earlier, but rap is also like, an ex an ex-girlfriend that I was infatuated with when I was a kid and spoken word is like you know the woman I ended up falling in love with <laughs> she brings out the best in me I bring out the best in her we give each other the space to be who we really are that's what I've always felt with spoken word everyone comes to it to be who they are a lot of the time I mean not everyone there's always types and there's always agendas and formulas that emerge from any system but I feel like when I was a rapper the people that I were around were all trying to be one type and when I was a poet I was introduced to more people that wanted to be themselves and when are you the most unguarded in my writing or in my life in your life <laughs> I'm nosy <laughs> <laughs> when I'm around my family and friends of course mm -hmm. yeah and my partner you know I'm trying to work in a way that keeps me around them as opposed to takes me away and makes me spend hours in an office or in, in the studio. Mm -hmm. And in your writing? In my writing, um, when I'm high. Really when high? high. <laughs> yeah, like when I smoke weed. That's and, and so, yeah. Okay, and so, that's what I need to try, George. <laughs> And so do you do you always smoke when you write? Do you need to smoke to write? No. I don't need to smoke. So I was I was an I was a rapper from the age of 15 to 19. Um and a lot of the writing that I did took place on the bus home. I I had a very long journey to and from school. Um so on that long journey to keep my brain engaged, I challenged myself to write whether or not I felt like it. So I was always writing lyrics. Fortunately, that discipline carried into my um, adult career. So I write as training, mm -hmm. but when I smoke, I think I am able to let go of processes that shouldn't be too controlled yeah. when you're trying to write poetry. To be more unguarded. There you go. Back to your question. Well, you know it's legal in Canada, so you can move here. <laughs> and and I know that. Yeah, I, I feel that. Like uh, I, I I attended a talk with Snoop Dogg when he was partnering with um, a Canadian company yes. in Montreal. Actually, I was there. I loved it. We want to end uh, with the very beginning of your first podcast episode. My name is George the Poet, but right now I'm Uncle George, watching my nephews play with their friends. I'm 20 years older than these kids, and I'm imagining what the next 20 years will be like for them. Some of them will obviously be dead. 
some in jail, some sitting right here watching their own kids asking the same questions. So, George, what are the your hopes and fears for your nephews in the next 20 years? Well, um, I hope that my nephews find self-determination on their journey. I want them to decide who they want to be with the right information. I don't want them to feel like there are five kinds of black men that they can be and four of them are gangster. As many of us did when we were growing up. Um, I want them to feel that the countries they can trace their heritage to are their birthright. And I want them to be part of a generation that can organize itself in a way that we couldn't. You know, speaking of organizing, you're able to bring people together through your art. Um, what's the advantage that you have, you think, with your poetry when it comes to fighting justice and equality, for, for justice and equality? Of course, of course. You know what's crazy, Martin? I think people like rhymes. People like rhymes. I don't know why. Because we ha we, we learned them when we mm -hmm. were young, right? It's from, I think it brings us yeah. back to, you know, our childhood or something. But, and, and as a matter of fact, I remember reading that you broke down the success of Disney songs. Yeah. So talk to us yeah. about that. Do you find that that's part of, okay. the, of the recipe of why people can gather around okay. art and songs, music? That's a very good point. Goes back to what Isabel just said. Childhood. That's where I got the, the clue. You know, I was spending time with my nephews. And the more time I was spending around them, the more I could appreciate how unconditional their thought patterns were. They could think outside of the structures that I was used to. The more time I spent with them, the more I could appreciate that about them. And, and this media, these movies, this Disney content captures all of their intuition. How? So I started watching Disney movies from that perspective. I was in love with Beauty and the Beast when I was a kid. I found on YouTube the original demo of the of the theme song, Taylor's All This Time, X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was listening to the demo, it just sounded like a guy in his flat messing around on the piano, just like me in my apartment messing around on whatever software I was recording myself on. So when I started reverse hack the movie from the perspective of, okay, this song had to be written and around this song, dialogue had to happen. And then after the dialogue happened, they had to create the score that would create a uniform experience. So understanding that process in the reverse gave me the building blocks of what to do with the podcast. Whoa. See, I don't have time to do these things. Like, this is pretty amazing. But then again, it proves my point. You know, it comes from your desire to understand the other, the other mm. human. It all comes down to that with you. And I think if, if everybody is like you as an observer and willingness to understand the other, we would be in a much better place right now. Thank you. Okay, our show is called Seat at the Table. So what does that mean to you? Yeah. To me, a seat at the table means showing up as exactly who I am. 
exactly who I am. I'm not going to sit at the table if I have to pretend to be someone else. It's a waste of everyone's time. Well, thank you. You showed up as you are, uh, George, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a good conversation. Merci beaucoup. Et puis, we'll see you in Montreal soon. Definitely. Okay. Take care of yourself, guys. Bye, George. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was George Mpanga, a.k.a. George the Poet. He's a London-based spoken word artist and the creator of the Peabody Award-winning series Have You Heard George's Podcast? You can and you should listen to his podcast on BBC Sounds. All episodes are available wherever you can get your podcasts. Seat at the Table is hosted and produced by me, Martine Saint-Victor. And also by me, Isabelle Rassico. The show is also produced by Melissa Fundira, Eunice Kim, and Justin Doucet. Our mixer is Crystal Duhem. Technical work this week by Mélanie Vien and Michel Saint-Pierre. Our senior producer is Tina Verma. And the executive producer of CBC Podcast is Arf Nourani. You can also reach us on Facebook at CBC Seat at the Table or tweet us. And don't forget to use the hashtag SeatCBC. That's right. Until next time, au revoir. Au revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.